Would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 to 16? It's on page 1194. We're almost at the end of Hebrews, closing in on it. Today we're looking at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 13. Let me read the passage and then we'll dig in. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Beware of becoming religious. Religion is a dangerous kind of thing that, if done improperly, can actually hinder us from coming to God and accentuate our distance from God rather than bringing us to Him. Now, to be clear, you do need religion to be right with God. But it has to be the right understanding of religion. And it seems that few find it. There is another approach to religion that I think is is sort of the way we typically go when we're like, I'm going to get religious, I'm going to develop my spirituality, and, and we enter this other path. It seems to be the way most people go, but it actually hinders us from God and and uh, highlights the chasm that stands between us and God. There was a priest once who tried to get very religious, and that's what he found. He, he found this other path that really didn't work, and and bringing him into uh, fellowship and relationship with God. He was actually a German priest. Um, he, wasn't, he didn't originally start being a priest. He was originally studying to be a lawyer. His dad was a coal miner, and his dad said, you're going to go to law school, and I'm, I've been working hard, saving money so you can go to school and succeed. So he was going to law school. He was walking home one night, and he got caught in this really violent thunderstorm. And it was really, you know, wild. And, and he was terrified that he was actually going to be struck by lightning. It was out in the open. And so he did one of those, like, if you get me out of this prayers, you know, I promise that I'll become a priest and I'll go to a monastery. Well, he did get out of it. This guy actually kept his word and much to his father's chagrin, left the law profession, entered the monastery and became a priest. And you would say, wow, what a religious guy to follow through on that. Well, he even kicked it up a notch from there. Even among his fellow priests, he was extremely religious. Uh, he would fast long uh, stretches. He would pray for hours on end. He would go to confession uh, sometimes 10, 20 times a day until the confessor was like, just please stop. I, I don't, I don't want to hear from you again. Um, he would sleep on a cold stone floor at night to try to deny himself. I mean, you would look at his life and you would say, what... What a religious man. Look how devoted and pious he is. But despite that, he just felt this crushing distance from God. He, he just felt still that he was under the judgment of God and nothing he could do could sort of make up for that. Well, then his monastery sent him as the monastery's representative to go to Rome. He actually got to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. He was really excited about that. So he got to Rome, and there he went to the Lateran Church. The Lateran Church was famous because... Uh, it had 28 marble steps leading up to the church. And they were purported to be the stone steps leading up to Pilate's throne. They're called, the, they called Pilate's stairs. And supposedly they were the stairs that Jesus walked up and down on 
during his trial, and, and they were supposedly stained with the blood of Jesus. So what um, penitents would do is, is pilgrims would come, and they would go up each step, and on each step they would pause, and they would say, in Our Father, and then they go up on their hands and knees. The next step, pause, say, in Our Father, and they go up all 28 steps, and at the top they receive some kind of absolution or some time knocked off purgatory or whatever it was that they got. So this priest came and he went up all these steps and he got to the top. And at the top, he had this terrible sinking feeling that it didn't matter at all what he just did. That it actually didn't connect him to God. That even though he went up the steps, he was no closer to God than when he began. So he went back to his monastery. Poor Martin Luther went back to his monastery. And he said, what, what am I to do? In fact, these are Martin Luther's own words. He said, Verily, I was a devout monk and followed the rules of my order so strictly that I cannot tell you all. If ever a monk entered into heaven because of his monkish merits, certainly I should have obtained an entrance there. The doctors and theologians told me to do good works and thus to satisfy divine justice. But what good works can proceed out of a heart like mine? A heart full of evil thoughts and desires. We try to get religious and spiritual, but we realize that the problem isn't our behaviors and routines. The problem is ultimately something inside of us. And so, I share this story with you for a reason. The reason I I tell you this story is because we're about to study Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, which are texts, it's a text very much about being religious. You know, look at some of the language there in verse 15. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. I mean, that's just religious talk. And so the, the command here is we need to be more religious. And so, but I have this fear that as I preach this text to you about being religious, we're going to think about it in terms of this faulty approach to religion and say, okay, I've got to do verses 15 and 16. I'm going to get more spiritual. I'm going to get more religious. I'm going to do what it says. And we're going to miss the boat. But fortunately, there in verses 15 and 16 is a key that can protect us from false religion and guide us to true religion. In fact, there's two words there in verses 15 and 16, two words that are so critical that if you miss those words, skip those words, and don't understand them, you can be right off going up the steps of the ladder in church on your knees before you know it in order to find the true biblical religion that we're talking about there these words are like a signpost on a dark road at night and you're trying to get where you're going and you come to this signpost and if you don't read the sign and don't make the right turn you'll just keep on going into a kind of fruitless religion that actually separates us from god and what are the two key words well they're there at the beginning of verse 15 through jesus Those words are so critical. What we're about to study has to be done through Jesus. Get rid of through Jesus, skip over those two words, and you are in a completely different religious system altogether. But if we grasp through Jesus, then then the door of heaven is open before us. Let me just talk about what it means. What does that mean, through Jesus? Because we're going to talk about offering sacrifices of praise and good deeds in a minute. But it's through Jesus. What does that mean? Well, go back to last week's verses, verses 11 and 12. If you were here last Sunday, Pastor Seth preached on these two verses. And it's all about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. Look at verse 11. 
the high priest, that is the Old Testament priest, carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So he's talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Think Yom Kippur is this week. Think this week. Actually, coming up is Yom Kippur. And uh, it's the high holy day of Judaism when the, uh, it's kind of like the Easter of Judaism, where the, the high priest and only the high priest on that day could go into the most holy place, that part of the, the temple or the tabernacle that was sacred, and only he could go in and only on that day, and he would take the blood of the sacrifice in and make atonement for the sins of Israel. And so it was like the highest holy day in Israel's history. Well, Jesus is the true high priest, if you look at verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. So what the Old Testament Day of Atonement prefigured, Jesus fulfilled. In fact, if you look at verses 11 and 12 and kind of take them together, they're sort of like a little mini summary of the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. This whole idea that Jesus is the superior high priest. For instance, uh, put a bookmark here in Hebrews 13. Go back to Hebrews 10. Let's just go back to a text we've already studied. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14 gives us contrast between the Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Those Old Testament sacrifices couldn't actually reconcile us to God. Verse 12, But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the amazing announcement of the gospel that Jesus has done the religion that God requires of us and He's done it for us. That Jesus lived the perfect life we could never have lived. He died on the cross, the perfect death to pay for our sins so that through Jesus uh, we can be right with God in a way that we could never have been no matter how many times you go up and down the stairs and the ladder in church. No matter what spiritual religious practices you do, Jesus has actually brought us to God by forgiving our sins on the cross. This was the big breakthrough for Martin Luther. A couple years after he had gone down to Rome and came back, you know, he was still in torment. He still felt like no matter what I do, I realize I'm a sinner and, and I can't be right with God. And so one day he was in his monastery, actually in the tower. He called it his tower experience. And he was studying for a lecture he was going to give on the book of Romans, chapter 1. He was studying verse 17. And there's a phrase in verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and Luther, just, he just didn't understand it. He's like, what does that mean? And he kept turning it over in his mind. What does it mean the righteous will live by faith? How do you do that? What does that entail? And, and suddenly there in that tower, it's like, you know, the, the sunbeam came down on his brain and his soul. And he was like, oh, and he got it. It was an aha moment. And it suddenly, it was revealed to him what that verse means. That the righteous person, the person who's right with God, is that way by faith in what Christ has done. In other words, we're not right with God by improving ourselves and 
working on our lives and trying to become more spiritual. You can't get there from here, as they like to say. You can't get there from here, right? The only way to get there is if there comes down to here, which is what Jesus did. And he realized that righteousness and a right standing with God is something that's received by faith. That Jesus had really performed the religion for us. And so, in Martin Luther's own words, he says in in that moment, here's how he describes it, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That place in Paul was, for me, truly the gate to paradise. Suddenly it was like, open and he was he could go to god as he realized that it was through christ's work not his work that he was reconciled to god this was the great the great moment in fact it's right here in hebrews look back at hebrews 10 look at the consequence of jesus's sacrifice for us look at verse 19 just keep reading on where we were therefore brothers chapter 10 verse 19 since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So, do you get that? On the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could go in just once a year into the most holy place. But through the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to go in anytime we want. The way is opened through Christ. By His blood. That's the key. Verse 20. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So because of Christ, the way is open. The way that we can never make for ourselves with all of our good deeds, spirituality, all that stuff, Christ has made a way open. And now I could boldly, through Jesus, come into the presence of God knowing that God is right with me and I'm right with Him through what Jesus did. No pastor or priest can get you to God. No sacrament or ritual of the church can absolve your sins and make you acceptable to God. No pilgrimage. You know, you can go to Rome or Madrigori or Mecca. You can do what I did last month. I went on this mission trip to Macedonia and actually went and visited the, ru- the ruins of Philippi in Greece you know, where the book of Philippians was written to. I, I actually walked in the Agora, the marketplace, where the Apostle Paul had walked and gotten into all that trouble. It was amazing. But you can't get to God by going to Philippi, even though it was an incredible experience. We can't get to God through meditation and uh, positive thinking strategies and all these different uh, spirituality techniques that people try today. That's not how you... Connect with Him and meet the Lord. Because it's not something we do. It's something that Christ has done for us. And don't you see, when you understand that, if you look down at verse chapter 13, verse 11, or 15 rather, going back, that through Jesus, when we understand that true religion is through Him, that it's because of what He's done that we can access God, it just changes your whole attitude toward religion. Because now it's about gratitude. In other words, the motivation for being religious isn't, okay, I've got to straighten myself out, I've got to get my act together, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. It's not that attitude, it's just gratitude. It's, look what Christ has done for me. 
And so my, my obedience and my religion is more of a response to God as opposed to something I'm doing to get God's attention or, or to make myself better or however you might want to frame it. It's kind of like um, several years back uh, here in the church, I taught a theology class. It was really fun. It took about 30 people, and we went for about a year. We studied this theology book. It was, it was a great time. But at the end of it, the people surprised me. They bought me a, uh, this will show you how dated this is, a Palm Pilot. Do you remember the Palm Pilots? Like the original PDAs. It was actually a Palm Pilot 3, okay? Um, but it was a great little thing. It was color. You know, I'd, it was this cool little toy that I'd always wanted one of these PDAs. And they chipped together as a class, and they bought it for me. It probably cost like 300 or 350 bucks at the time, which is a pretty nice gift, you know, better than like gift certificates at Taco Bell or something. So, um, and I was speechless. I was like, I can't believe they got this for me. That was ama- it was just a really kind gesture. Now, imagine if when they gave it to me, I had said, "Woo, wow, that's amazing. And I, I pulled out my checkbook. I say, how much was it for again? I'll, I'll get you guys back here. And I filled it out and gave it to the person who gave it to me and said, just cash that money and, and divide it up among the people. I'll pay you back. So thank you very much. You know, they'd, people would be offended. They'd be like, we don't want your money. It's a gift, right? And yet we have this approach to God, like, oh, don't worry, God. I'll, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to pay you back. You can't do that. Well, you can pay back a palm pilot. You can't pay back the blood of Christ. It's a gift of infinite value and worth. And yet somehow that's how we approach God. What does God want us to do with the blood of Christ? He just wants us to rejoice, to be thankful, to delight in our salvation. It's kind of like when you give a gift to a kid at Christmas or on their birthday or your grandkids. You know, what's the thing that gets you happy? Just watching them open it and play with it. You want to see them open it. You want to see them enjoy it and play with it. That's what pleases you as the gift giver, is to see the other person delighting in the gift. And so that's what God is looking for in our religion, is for us to delight in the gift of salvation. But when you get rid of the through Jesus, it's no longer about a gift. It's no longer about a rejoicing. It's now about some kind of religious effort. So we need religion But it's got to be the right kind. It's got to be through Jesus. All right. With that in mind, with those glasses on, with that understanding firmly fixed in our minds, let's look at the two commands in verses 15 and 16. Because he's going to tell us now the kind of religious behavior we should engage in. And the first one's in verse 15. The first religious behavior is that we need to speak God's praises. Look at verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. What does that mean, a sacrifice of praise? Well, he tells us in the next line, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So first and foremost, we need to, I don't know, speak thanks and praise to God. It's just very natural. You're given a great gift. What do you say? Thank you. We teach our kids this at a very young age. Thank you. It just, it just come out. Thanks. Wow, I can't believe you did this for me. And when we meditate on the magnitude of what Christ has done for us, this shouldn't be something we have to even think about. It should just come out. Thank you, Jesus. We just praise Him. The praise should come out of our mouths naturally. Um, And again, it's through Jesus, right? You take away through Jesus and suddenly praise becomes something else. The goal here is not to develop a kind of Christian jargon speak. You know, like, okay, I'm a Christian now. Well, how do Christians talk? Well, they say praise the Lord a lot. So I guess I've got to say praise the Lord. 
And thank you, Jesus, no matter what happens. And, you know, you almost develop this kind of, like, verbal tick, right? It, it's, it, I, I've, known, I've known some Christians, not a lot, but a few, who say praise the Lord so often. It's, it's almost like they're just saying, um, you know? And I don't even know. It's like, are you really praising him? Maybe you are. I'm not going to judge, but it just seems strange. It's sort of so constant that you even wonder if it means anything. So the goal isn't to sort of develop this holy roller verbiage that makes us sound super spiritual. The purpose is just to be so awed through Jesus and what he's done that it's natural to praise him. It's natural to say how much we appreciate him and and thank him. Uh, As it says there in verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. We should, on a regular basis, be awed at what Christ has done. It should be continual. Just as in the Old Testament, the priests had morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, Sabbath sacrifices, new moon sacrifices, holy days, Passover, Pentecost, all different sacrifices people brought, day of atonement. And so in the same way, we just need to be filled up with praise to God and thanking Him and praising Him. Look at this. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Look at a passage that's very similar. Turn over two books. So it goes Hebrews, James, then 1 Peter is the next one after that. So Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Go to chapter 2. Here's another text about our praising God, our worship. True biblical religion through Him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, As you come to Him, that is to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's that concept again. It's through Jesus So it's pretty cool. In in the Old Testament, there was an actual temple and there were actual priests and sacrifices. In the New Testament, there's a temple too. Us. And there's a priesthood too. All Christians are the priests and also the temple. It's kind of weird. But but it's, it's all the Old Testament images taken into the church. And so we're the living temple. We're also the priesthood. That's why, by the way, I tell people I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. Okay, you know, yeah, I am a priest in the sense that every Christian is a priest, but there's no category in the New Testament of a pastor who's like a priest. That's really just an unbiblical concept. You know, we're all priests, all of us who are Christians. We're we're a, a nation of priests, as we'll see in a minute, and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, like what? What is it? What kind of sacrifices do we offer? What's our new religion entail? We'll look down at verse nine. Here we go. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. There it is. A holy nation, a people belonging to God. Those are all Old Testament uh, titles of Israel now applied to the church, the new Israel. And then he says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There it is. What do we do as the new priesthood? We declare his praises because he's saved us. So again, it's because he's brought us out of darkness to light because of what he's done I respond with gratitude and praise as we declare His praises. So, we need to praise the Lord. When we get up in the morning, before our feet hit the floor, I need to just stop and say, thank you, Jesus, 
for this day. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Thank you that no matter what happens today, you are my Lord, and I'm praising you. You know, in our, our homes, we need to praise God. We need to throw on some CDs with worship music sometimes. Just sing in our homes and praise God. We need to pray it with our families. I just did a Sunday school class right before the service on household worship, worshiping in the home. We need to practice that and learn how to do that well. Uh, we come to church. We praise Him. We sing His praises in song and, and reading the Scriptures. It's all part of this response. We're responding in gratitude to what He's done for us. Even evangelism. I don't know. Evangelism is one of those tough things that we all don't do very well, but we know we're supposed to do. And, and we just kind of soldier on through it. We're like, oh dear, I'm a Christian. I've got to evangelize someone. Oh, I hate doing this. I hate talking to people. Okay. Hey, excuse me. I don't know you, but look, I just got to check this off my box this week. And uh, I'll give you 10 bucks if you listen to me right now. Okay, just... I just got, okay, ready? Jesus died for our sins. You know, we're like, I got to evangelize because I'm supposed to evangelize. What if you thought of evangelism as simply declaring the praises of God to people who don't know Him? Just bragging about God. You know, we brag about the patriots and we brag about our grandkids and we brag about all kinds of things. What, what if we also just said, you know, someone's like, well, what happened with that thing in your life or something that was going on? You say, you know, it's a funny thing. I was praying about it and then this happened and this happened and God did it. It was amazing. You know, you're just declaring His praises. You're just talking about how awesome God is in a natural way. So, so that maybe even evangelism is simply that high priestly role of declaring, or the priestly role of declaring His praises to the people around us. What if it's like that? We, we just need to praise the Lord. We need to speak His praise. Someone on this side of the room over here, say, praise the Lord. And someone over here, say, Jesus, thank you. I know this isn't very New England, is it? <laughs> it is very Christian, though, to praise God. Someone on the balcony say hallelujah. You know what hallelujah means, right? It means praise the Lord. Halal, halalu, is the second person plural imperative Hebrew verb for praise. And Yah is Yahweh, the name of the Lord. So hallelujah, praise the Lord. Someone who had a really lousy week and didn't even want to come to church today. Praise the Lord. Right on. <laughs> you, yeah. A little too much honesty. Okay. Everybody put a bookmark in Hebrews 13 and let's turn to Psalm 113. We've got to praise Him when our life is crummy and when it's good. Because when you're a Christian and your soul's been saved by the blood of Christ... We have a deep reason to praise Him no matter what. That's greater than any trial, tribulation, setback, or suffering we may be facing. Look at Psalm 113. It's on page 604 in the Pew Bible. Let's just read it together. This is a great psalm of praise. Let's just read this and then we'll, we'll move on to the second act of worship. Psalm 113. Let's read the psalm together. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the One who sits enthroned on high, 
who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. And isn't that what Christ has done for us? He's lifted us in our neediness and our sin from the dust heap. He's rescued us and placed us with princes in the heavenly realms. He's made our lives fruitful. It's amazing what Christ has done for us. And so we need to praise the Lord through Him, because of Him, because of what He's done. Okay, quickly, going back to Hebrews 13. The second act of religion that we're commanded to do here is in Hebrews 13:16. Through Jesus, we offer a sacrifice of praise. And through Jesus, we do something else. Look at verse 16. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such praises God is pleased. So our religion is not only our lips, it's also our lives. It's not just our talk, it's also our walk. It needs to roll out into our lives, not just songs that we sing on a Sunday morning, but it should affect how we relate to people. And notice these two words. The first is to do good. Now that Greek word for do good uh, is sort of a rare word, but it, it often has connotations of showing kindness to people in need. So it's doing good specifically, seeing people who need help and doing good to them to help them. Or look at the next word there. It says share with others in this translation. It's actually one Greek word. It's the word koinonia which just means fellowship, uh, fellow feeling, uh, loving each other, being, being knit together in a fellowship bond. But obviously, the kind of fellowship that's not just, hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, great, you know, sort of a thing. But where we actually know each other well enough and love each other so much that we meet the tangible needs of our brothers and sisters when we're aware of them. So it's kind of like what he was talking about back in chapter 13, Verses 1 to 3. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers. You've got to make it tangible. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Verse 3. Keep it tangible. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. We have to know each other enough, love each other enough as a church community that... We even meet each other's needs as we become aware of them, if we're aware of them. So, so it's a very practical, active kind of fellowship. Um, that's true religion. James put it this way, the next book, chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So true religion through Him is not just speaking His praises, but it's also loving each other as a church community and caring for each other in real, tangible ways at times. Um, that's interesting, because I think that's pretty hard. We often, when we think of getting religious, we often think about rituals. You know, let's get religious. Let's light some candles. Let's get religious. Let's light some incense. Then we'll have a religious ambiance in the room you know someone play the organ lightly in the background that's religious it's like it's not religious it's just an organ it's just candles 
You and I may have certain nostalgic or personal associations with those things, but it's not true religion. It doesn't make it religious to have stained glass or clear glass. I mean, that's not what makes real religion. Real religion is something much different. It's loving each other. That's the kind of religion that God is looking for, which frustrates me because I can manage rituals. (laughs) I can master rituals. Loving people is hard work because people are people, and it's tough to be in fellowship with each other. Is it not ironic, sadly ironic, that we and I so often come to church religiously to fulfill my religious obligations and yet in the process can remain so distant and disconnected from others. You know, and then I go home and say, oh, well, I was religious. Really? But I didn't. I was, I was at church, but I wasn't in the church. And, and so we have to take steps to do that. We have to take steps to become involved in each other's lives, which I understand is not very New England. I understand that. But it is very Christian. It's very Christian, just like praising the Lord is Christian. And so we need to love each other. That means, first of all, we have to know each other. You can't even help and reach out to someone if you don't even know them. You've got to know people. In a church of this size, two worship services, are you going to be able to know everybody? Of course not. But you can know some people. I can know some people. And if I know people, I can... I can check up on them and and care about them. If if I see a need, I can meet it. Sometimes needs are very simple. It's like someone who just wants to talk to you for 10 minutes because they really want to just have you pray for them. You know, and someone shares something with you, it's going to feel awkward, but just do it. Say, hey, you just shared something heavy with me. Can I pray for you really quick? And I've, because I I used to say to people like, like, okay, I'll be praying for you about that. I find sometimes I just forget. So it's easier sometimes just to pray for them right there. But that's, you know, Loving each other and meeting a need, listening and loving and praying with each other as the body of Christ. Uh, someone might be in financial need. We can help them out without getting a tax deduction. It's okay just to help people uh, who are in different crises. I know one family in our church that was going through a really difficult time, and um, just recently, just a real time of grief and loss, a lot of pain. And another family in the church knew about it, and they just came over to their house. And, and they said, you know what, we just want to wash your windows. And they're like, okay. So they brought, you know, buckets and all this. I, I hate washing windows. I don't know about you. I hate that job. Uh, but they just went over and they're like, we're going to do a crummy job for you. We're going to wash your windows. And now, you know, and they're sitting there in their house telling me this story, looking out of these clean windows, and they could just see the love of these people in those, a simple act of washing someone's windows. Just simple things like that where we reach out and care for each other in the church there's a woman uh, in our church, so many know her, Cindy Norton, John and Cindy Norton. They were members of our church for many years, leaders in our church. They finally retired, and they said, we're retired. What should we do? Well, let's go be missionaries in Uganda. So that's where they are. We need to pray for them, by the way. There's uh, you know, rioting and crazy things going on in Uganda right now, so keep them in your prayers. But uh, I remember when Cindy was here, she would, um, she would often say on Sunday mornings when we were praying together before the service, she would just pray, Lord... I don't know who you want me to reach out to today, but there's probably someone who needs your encouragement. So just lead me to that person and let me be ready to speak to them. It's What a great spirit to come into church. Say, I'm going to do real religion today. I'm going to love the body of believers and the fellowship of other Christians. Now, I know what's happening right now. I, I know it. There's some serious guilt emerging in this room. A bunch of type A, driven people and you're like oh i gotta be more loving yes 
You're already formulating plans. You're like, I know what I'll do. Every second and fourth Tuesday, I will have a potluck at my house. Yes, that's it. And you're concocting strategies for how you're going to become more loving and more welcoming to people. Right? Some of you, you know, the, the Excel spreadsheets already in your head. How you've, you've organized hospitality in your mind. You're like, I'm going to become more hospitable. I've got to do this and this. And you're going right up the steps of the ladder in church. Okay, drop it. You want to become a more loving Christian? Do you want to? I think we all do. You know, I read that. And I'm like, boy, I'd like to be more like that. But I don't know about you. I'm introverted. I just kind of keep to myself. That's my natural personality. I know it doesn't seem like because I preach up here, but I really am. I'm just kind of a keep to myself kind of person. It's hard to do that. I want to be more loving. How do you do it? I'll tell you how to become a more loving, outgoing Christian. Go back to the foot of the cross and let yourself be awed again at Christ's love for you. Just sit there for a minute at the foot of the cross and be amazed at Jesus. That He went from heaven to earth. I mean, talk about crossing a barrier for us. He went from the furthest possible distance from heaven to earth to come for us. And He gave. He he met our needs. He met our deepest need, which was salvation. And He paid at the price of His own life. It's amazing. And then as I sit there, sort of overwhelmed and awed at the love of Christ for me, and let my heart be filled up with what He's done for me, it just kind of spills over naturally to others. Suddenly, the social distance between me and another person is, is like nothing. Because I'm like, well, Christ came for me. I mean, you know, yeah, that person is a different kind of job or a different kind of town or a different kind of background. But who cares? You know, Christ came for me. Suddenly, social distances seem like nothing to the person who's awed at the love of Christ. And suddenly, sacrifices, listening to someone for ten minutes and praying for them, is like nothing because I'm just in awe of Christ's sacrifice for me. And so to become a more loving Christian is not about sort of kick yourself in the pants and try harder. It's just letting the love of Christ fill you and amaze you and captivate you so that it it just sort of pours out. And even the most introverted, keep-to-yourself New Englander can be a vessel for His grace. But the key is, brothers and sisters, whether we're going to praise Him or whether we're going to love others, the key is to do it all through Jesus. So we have to come to the foot of the cross yet again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just gather again in this moment at the foot of Your cross in awe and wonder that You would come to save sinners like us. Lord, we're just amazed at You. And God, I pray that You would stir in us a gratitude response. That, Lord, it would even come out in our speech that we would praise You, Lord. That we would speak about You because we stand in awe of You. And, Lord, I pray that You'd make us more loving, that You would make us more gracious and kind But let it not be some sort of Christian duty. Lord, may it come out of a heart overwhelmed and awestruck at Your gracious kindness to us. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who maybe has lived their whole lives with the wrong understanding of religion. It happens. And God, I just pray that today they would see that there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to our Maker. 
that it's only what Christ has done. I pray that today there would be some who, like Luther, would have that aha moment and they would realize the righteous must live by faith in You. And so, God, show us the cross again. Show us our Savior. Fill us up with His kindness so that we might overflow to others. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen.